I'm LV Deutsch, and this is Technomythology, an audio rendition of an essay I wrote for Sacred Bones Books in 2021. This audio essay covers a wide web of ideas, so please take a break whenever you might feel like you need to. There are some musical pauses throughout the piece, which you can take as an opportunity to step away or take a breath if you wish. Thank you for listening. Are we living in a computer simulation? The question seems to be asked more and more these days. Although the scenario has been well explored in works of fiction, speculation about whether or not we are living in a computer program run by a more technologically advanced civilization has crossed over into the realm of serious scholarly study. Notable figures in the fields of science and technology now often weigh in on the subject. Neil deGrasse Tyson has publicly shared his opinion that it's very likely that our world is simulated. Stephen Hawking thought that the possibility was about 50%. Elon Musk thinks the chance that we are not living in a simulation is one in billions. The American Museum of Natural History has hosted a formal debate on the topic, and the Bank of America has gone so far as to issue a report to their clients suggesting that there is a 20 to 50% chance that we are living in a simulation. It seems as though references to the simulation are riddled throughout popular culture and personal conversations, reinforcing a worldview that many consider to be increasingly plausible. There are even rumors that two anonymous tech billionaires have employed a small group of scientists to figure out how to break us out of the simulation. It might be easy to guess why the idea of a computer-generated reality has taken such a vivid hold of the collective imagination. We live in an increasingly postmodern society where mental, physical, and virtual worlds converge and permeate each other. As technology becomes pervasive to the point of ubiquity in everyday life, the psychological and philosophical implications of the relationship between humans and technology are rapidly evolving to reveal a merging process of almost unimaginable proportions. 
computer-generated images are becoming indistinguishable from images of nature, just as the human experience is synthesizing with computer interfaces. People engage with virtual representations in just about all aspects of life, from banking and medical appointments to social media and online dating. We house our memories in our phones, in pictures, in text conversations, in Google searches. The boundaries between the inner world and the outer world are becoming harder to define as we become more inextricably woven into the fabric of a technological reality. The technology scholar N. Catherine Hales coined the term technogenesis to describe the relationship that we as humans have with our technologies as we co-evolve with them. According to Hales, these technologies are not external to us. As we invent them and incorporate them into our lives, we fuse with them in increasingly complex ways. We are now beginning to glimpse the personal consequences of such relationships, but what might this perpetual fusing with tech produce on a collective scale? Certainly, as prolonged interaction with technology alters the personal experience of consciousness, so too must it affect the collective consciousness through the accumulation of such interaction. But what happens at the deeper levels of the collective unconscious? What activity might this persistent technological integration generate at the stratosphere of the objective psyche, where archetypes reign and myths are generated? As human consciousness becomes more and more entangled with technology on a collective scale, what might technology's relationship to the symbolic structuring that operates within the collective unconscious become? We are in the midst of a paradigm shift regarding how we view the world and our own consciousness within it, and a shift of this magnitude requires, and determines, a mythological shift as well. If we understand consciousness to be, in part, a story that we tell ourselves, at this moment in time, that story must include technology. And if mythology is one way we witness consciousness reveal its agentive nature, which we inherit as a means of understanding ourselves, then a new techno-mythology must come into being. Proponents of the simulation hypothesis promoted as a scientific theory, which, if true, would solve age-old scientific and religious mysteries. Certainly some thinkers have accused the hypothesis of being a repackaging of perennial religious structures under a quote-unquote scientific cloak, but the dynamic is a little more complicated than that. It is not as simple as a translation of a certain framework from the language of one discipline to another, although such an analysis is relevant and informative. One way of interpreting the narrative that underpins the simulation hypothesis is to view it as a creation mythology, mapped onto the technological possibilities of our time and of the future. It is this tension that makes it unique. It is the same tension that presides over our ever-changing understanding of our current technological reality as we navigate the quickly closing gap between the now and the what's ahead. As we find ourselves caught somewhere between the natural world and the digital universe, a mythological reading of the simulation hypothesis may reveal an attempt of psyches to make meaning of this transition point. If approached as a myth, we may begin to see the simulation hypothesis crystallize as a hybrid phenomenon, not quite science and not quite fiction, which perhaps can tell us as much or more about where we are now as well as where we are going.
The forms and functions of myth are varied and widespread. The narratives that comprise any mythology may be multiple and intertwining, making it difficult to codify. One source may tell a myth a certain way and another tell it a different way. Is one version more true? Truth in terms of mythology is hard to define in the way we typically understand the concept via our externally oriented intellectual tradition. In terms of the purpose to which it is in service, the trueness of myth may be considered in light of the inner experience of meaning that it provides. And the larger truth of mythology may lie in the fact that it remains alive and ever-changing, propagating itself upon the needs of both inner and outer realities as the world changes. Carl Jung considered myths to be the symbolic results of the mind. As such, the reality to which myth refers does not have to be objective. Instead, myths may speak to abstract, emotional, conceptual, or internal realities, which provide an instinctive knowledge of life's dimension of timelessness as it is experienced in lived time. In the same way that we know that there are more colors in the light spectrum than we are able to see, such as infrared, and more odors than we are able to smell, such as carbon monoxide, so too are we able to possess a knowledge of other aspects of consciousness that are outside our direct awareness. In this way, myth may be considered vital to the holistic health of the human experience, connecting us with an understanding of psyche's interconnected vastness beyond the scope of our everyday orientation. There are some mythic structures that are distinct from others. Creation myths are of a unique variety that speak to a specific set of intentions and aims. Unlike hero myths or more local myths of an event or place, creation myths communicate something about the entirety of existence and the fundamental patterns of which existence is comprised. They contain something more than other myths, something that concerns the mystery of the origin of life, both human and cosmic. Creation myths attempt to formulate an image of where, when, and how the primordial beginning occurred. Creation myths seek to tell of the transition point where the nothing that was not became the something that was. However, because it is impossible to have direct knowledge of the moment of our own creation, being the very thing our existence is built upon, there is a paradox inherent in the endeavor. The exact beginning of human existence is a mystery. And because it is a mystery, the unconscious generates many models of the event. Psychologist and author Marie-Louise von Franz points out that whenever we make contact with the boundaries of the unknown, whenever our knowledge of reality ends, there, we project an archetypal image. According to Jung, archetypes are primordial psychic patterns that originate from within the collective unconscious. The collective unconscious is objective and transpersonal. It differs from the personal unconscious in scope and content. The personal unconscious is contained within one person and is determined by their personal experiences, while the collective unconscious is inherited and shared by all. Jung built his concept of the collective unconscious based on his studies of comparative mythology, in which he saw that corresponding mythic motifs and images were present throughout a multitude of different cultures separated by time and geography. From the presence of these analogous representations, he intimated the existence of certain shared propensities for the structural ordering of images, 
and came to call these dispositions archetypes. In Greek, the word archetype means prime imprinter or original pattern. Archetypes are both objective, universal structures that influence the emergence of specific images into consciousness, as well as dynamic agents that constellate themselves spontaneously according to their own laws. We interact with archetypes as both object and subject. Jung compared the archetype's organizational process in the psychic realm as being similar to the role of instinct as a structuring factor of nature in the biological realm. In the process of projection that von Franz was referring to, whenever we encounter the edges of known reality, an archetypal formation occurs to fill in the blanks. Ancient sailing maps used symbols or monsters to represent unknown aspects of certain cartographies. In the middle of the map, there would be a rendering of whatever landmass was known, and then toward the edges, there would be images of magical beings like dragons or the Ouroboros, illustrating uncharted territories. Interestingly enough, there is a similar phenomenon in science called the lore of completion. The mathematician and cosmologist Herman Bondi pointed out that whenever we encounter the outermost perimeter of our scientific understanding of what we can measure, we then conclude that there is nothing else beyond that. We think that we have a complete picture of reality within our measured framework. In physics in particular, there was once this tendency to believe that nothing existed beyond the level of reality into which current technology could penetrate. Events that are observed at microphysical levels of reality, in very small dimensions or time frames, which reveal relativistic or quantum phenomena, are still sort of shrugged off by many scientists as something strange that exists, but does not affect the mechanics of the level of reality in which we live our everyday lives. However, it is at these levels, where there is no difference between what exists and what is observed as existing, in which archetypes are activated. The scientific tradition freely admits that the truth may change. Theories become obsolete as our tools become more advanced and yield more information. In a mythological system, the older the structure is, the more credence it is often given. In part, mythology deals with a metaphoric reality, one that exists within the interior of the mind, while technoscience deals with the outside world in objective measures and mechanisms. But what happens when these two territories intersect and cross-pollinate? From one perspective, mythology may be considered a language of images, and language itself is a technology. However, we also tend to hold the historical perspective that myth sort of stands as a precursor to science. In the way we once turned to mythology to explain how the world works on cosmic, cultural, religious, class, and geographical levels, we now turn to science and scientific thinking. As the Enlightenment flourished, the 19th century rational viewpoint was that scientific and technological advancement would progressively get rid of magic and all kinds of non-scientific paradigms. The theory was that people would come to think scientifically because the aims that magic had been employed to accomplish would more surely and efficiently be achieved by science. But that didn't happen. There was never an eradication of non-scientific thinking. In fact, now that we as a species are increasingly thinking and acting by means of techno-scientific systems, there is a huge re-emergence of the mystical in the very spaces from which it was thought to be banned. 
This is seen not only in the way in which technology, like the internet, serves as the disseminator of all kinds of knowledge, belief, and information, but also in the ways in which technology now produces or hosts certain magical and mythological structures. At the same time, if myths are the symbolic results of the mind, then we also must take into consideration that our symbols change as our understanding of the world changes. The symbol of the king no longer means the same thing it did when it was used in alchemical texts. What was once an image of total and supreme power has been relegated to a performative function in society, and over time, the symbol has lost some of its potency. The systems of societal organization also change. The mythologist Joseph Campbell points out that, in part, Mythologies function as fundamental frames of reference for specific cultures, which reinforce specific sets of values. Up until a certain point in human history, mythologies evolved within boundaried spheres of people with finite horizons of knowledge and purpose. However, as the world becomes more globalized and connected through its technologies, these boundaries are breaking down. Organized religions, which were once a territory in which the production of myths flourished, are collapsing through the same globalization process. The thing that connects humans with one another, and which perhaps provides some understanding of unity and togetherness, is no longer found in an experience within a mosque or a temple, but is instead found through a computer screen. Technology has changed the way we see the world, and the impetus that was once expressed by organized religion to create in-groups and out-groups becomes radically challenged in a globalized world in which a person has access to infinite information at their fingertips. Would it not make sense, then, that we might begin to see mythology play out within the technological landscape? If technology has risen up as the entity that provides a sense of unity with the world, then perhaps the mythological function of psyche has now migrated to the realm that presently serves to hold us together. Our desire to make sense of the world we live in does not lessen as time moves forward, But as our reality transforms, the way in which we perform the act of making meaning changes. Von Franz describes the way that archetypes shift based on the changes in outer conditions, which render certain theories outmoded. As external reality undergoes a significant change, a second archetype is naturally pushed forward in the unconscious and constellates another model or idea. This new model is then seen as the truth, while the older model becomes labeled a projection. And as von Franz points out, as long as we in the West believe we are talking about the true qualities of something and not about projections, then we call it objective scientific truth. Perhaps something like the archetype of the machine is beginning to solidify. If so, it is reasonable to infer that a mythic expression is not far behind, because although our archetypes may change as reality requires, the patterns in which they arrange themselves remain isomorphic. Again, if myths are the symbolic results of the mind, then we must also take into consideration that our symbols change as our understanding of our mind changes. The feasibility of the simulation hypothesis relies on a very specific informatic view of reality, human consciousness, and the mind. Although we will explore this concept in greater depth later, This informatic view has roots in older materialist ideas of reality and may possibly be seen as an evolution of earlier established theoretical constructs. What is a significant change, and one that may allow the simulation hypothesis to be considered a viable creation myth, 
is the unprecedented synthesis of information technology and human consciousness that has been a hallmark of the last 50 years. Von Franz explains that before we can even begin to understand what the content of a creation myth may be telling us, we must also remember that we cannot speak about any kind of reality except in its form as a content of our consciousness. She goes on to say that one finds creation myth motifs whenever the unconscious is preparing a basically important progress in consciousness. When consciousness undergoes an enormous change, when older representations no longer hold, and the balance between an outer understanding of the world and an inner understanding of reality no longer aligns, new creation myths may emerge from within the objective psyche as a means of regenerating a cosmic model, not through the process of reconstruction, but through the process of re-creation. Although there were certainly sci-fi narratives that predated it, the most popular depiction of a computer-simulated reality is undoubtedly The Matrix. Released in the spring of 1999, The Matrix seemed to further ignite the Western technological imagination, which was already burning in anticipation of the coming millennium. The film tells the story of Neo, a hacker who comes to understand that reality as he knows it is in fact a computer simulation run by an evil artificial intelligence. Through the help of members of a resistance who know the truth, Neo comes to accept that he is the one who can fight back against the AI and bring the Matrix down. In part, the Matrix was inspired by the work of science fiction legends William Gibson and Philip K. Dick, the latter of whom gave a famous speech at a French science fiction convention in 1977, explicitly stating his belief that we are living in a computer simulation. According to Dick, a person may be able to tell that the world is simulated by observing certain alterations in reality by which some variable is changed. Two years after The Matrix was released, Oxford philosopher Nick Bostrom would publish the first version of his seminal paper, Are You Living in a Computer Simulation?, the final version of which was published in Philosophical Quarterly in 2003. The paper became very influential and remains the cornerstone of theoretical discourse on the topic of a potential simulated reality. In it, Bostrom lays out what he calls the simulation argument, which presents the probability of our reality being a simulation based on the truth of one of three propositions. They are, one, the human species will go extinct before ever developing into a post-human stage in which running detailed ancestor simulations is technologically possible. Two, the human species does arrive at this kind of technological maturity, but for various reasons, perhaps lack of interest or restrictive regulations, 
does not run historical simulations. Or three, we are almost certainly living in a computer simulation. Basically, Bostrom is saying that either the human race will reach a state of technological advancement where it can run ancestor simulations or it won't. If we do ever reach that state, at any time in the future, no matter how long it takes, then it is very highly likely that we are already living inside a simulation. This is because if a civilization ever does reach that point of technological maturity, and if they have an interest in creating historical ancestor simulations, then simulated beings will come to greatly outnumber unsimulated beings. After the technology to create high-fidelity simulations, which can host simulated experiences of such detail and magnitude as that of our current reality, is invented, all that would be needed for there to be billions of similar simulations would be more computing power. According to the model Bostrom is thinking within, this kind of steady, exponential growth of computer power is a given, and future civilizations will have access to massive amounts of it. So if a civilization has reached this stage where it is running ancestor simulations, then it is probably running billions of them. That means that the number of simulated humans will vastly outnumber the number of humans or other kinds of beings that exist outside of the simulation. This being so, it is rational to conclude that we ourselves would be among the simulated beings and not a biological member of the base reality from which the simulation is run. The idea of becoming post-human is critical to Bostrom's theory. Although thinkers in various fields approach the concept in different ways, for this argument, the term post-human refers to a state of development in which the persons or entities within a species have transcended the limits of human mental, physical, and biological conditions. The simulated worlds of Bostrom's theory would be post-human civilizations, although the people living inside them wouldn't necessarily know that. Post-human as a genre of thought speaks to the deconstruction of the human and treats the notion of the human as open and capable of evolving into entirely new forms, mostly through technoscientific methods. Sometimes the term is used interchangeably with transhumanism, although there are distinct differences between them. Transhumanism also considers the notion of the human to be open and evolving, but for transhumanists, the goal is usually human enhancement, not the arrival at a state of existence that is post-human altogether. Some thinkers have highlighted the difference and describe transhumanism as a transitional state between the human and the post-human. Transhumanists advocate for the development and implementation of technology aimed at enhancing the human form, the present iteration of which they do not consider final. A post-human form might be considered whatever a future version might be without necessarily maintaining a centered focus on the human as we know it. Central to Bostrom's argument is a future moment in time after which the technologies needed to create such post-human realities would exist. Although the term became more widely adopted after the publication of Bostrom's paper and does not appear within it, the theoretical point of this kind of technological maturity is often called the singularity. The term, as it's currently used, was first introduced by Werner Vinge, a computer scientist and science fiction writer whose 1993 paper, The Technological Singularity, described a point in time after which technological growth would be uncontrollable and the world as we know it irreversibly changed. 
The term is now employed as a catch-all to describe a stage of technological development where artificial intelligence has reached or surpassed human intelligence, perhaps coagulating into some kind of superintelligence. It is also used to denote a time after which enormous advancements in computing power and virtual reality will make it so that there is no distinction between human and machine, and virtual reality will be indistinguishable from real life. Although the concept of such a future seems outlandish to some, many technologists and futurologists insist that it's not. Elon Musk defends his belief that we are living in a simulation by referencing the history of video games. Pong was invented about 50 years ago and consisted of two rectangles and a dot, which simulated a two-dimensional game similar to table tennis. Now, video games are three-dimensional, photorealistic representations that have millions of people playing them simultaneously, and video game technology is improving every year. Musk and others believe that this trend of growth will carry on, and soon we will see the development of more sophisticated levels of virtual and augmented reality. If one were to assume the rate of improvement will continue, who knows what technology we will have in 50 years from now, let alone 250 years. Much of the basis for this kind of thinking can be traced back to something called Moore's Law. Moore's Law is a prediction that was made by engineer Gordon Moore in 1965 and revised in 1975 when proven correct, which stated that the number of transistors on a microchip would double approximately every two years. The prediction held true for decades and demonstrated technology's exponential progress in terms of processing power. Although it seems that in the last few years we have seen this progress slow for the first time since the prediction was made, in large part because there is some kind of fundamental limit to how many transistors can actually fit on a microchip, there are other parallel trajectories of technological advancement that also describe increasingly rapid growth. Ray Kurzweil, a futurist who is known for being the unofficial spokesperson for the singularity, has charted other comparable graphs of technological advancement. The speed of processors, price of RAM, and cost of sequencing DNA all show the same results of exponential growth of power doubling every few years. His 2005 book, The Singularity is Near, traced this exponential upcurve through history and concluded that this trend of smaller, faster, smarter machines would eventually result in artificial intelligence that surpassed human intelligence. Even if this kind of progress slowed down for whatever reason, it's been argued that this would not affect whether or not the singularity would occur, it would simply affect when it would occur. According to Kurzweil, whenever the singularity is reached, this kind of superintelligence will self-replicate, and those replications will then replicate, resulting in an explosion of artificial intelligence that will render most of our conclusions about the world around us obsolete. Besides the enormous technological power that would be needed, there is another theoretical presupposition that is essential for the situation Nick Bostrom highlights in his paper, Are You Living in a Computer Simulation? One that he admits would need to prove true in order for his argument to work at all. That is substrate independence. Substrate independence is the concept that non-biological, non-carbon-based substrates can host conscious experiences. The theory of substrate independence says that if a system can carry out certain processes based on certain computational structures, then that system would be conscious. It all has to do with how one thinks about consciousness and what one considers to be the mind. If one subscribes to an informatic view of reality, which many transhumanists and posthumanists do, 
then information is what makes up the universe and is even more fundamental than carbon-based matter. Although this is a complex view of the world, its relationship to substrate independence can be illustrated by looking at the transhumanist endeavor of mind uploading. There are groups of transhumanists, like the transhumanist religion Terrasem, devoted to the future practice of digital immortality through the process of mind uploading. Mind uploading, or uploading consciousness, is the theoretical transmigration of human selfhood onto a computational substrate. The possibility of mind uploading hinges on the informatic view of reality, which considers the mind to be made up of information that is both material and replicable, and that this material may be transferred from one substrate to another, making the mind essentially substrate independent. In this view, the human self, and all that composes it, such as abilities and memories, is essentially constituted by an explicit and unique pattern of atoms in a singular brain, which is the information. Thus, after the human in whom the pattern of information called the mind originated has died, the mind may remain in existence as a pattern of information for an indefinite and potentially unlimited amount of time on a new substrate, usually a computer or server, barring the destruction of that substrate. Eventually, the mind as information could be transferred to a computer programmed to emulate brain processes, or it could be held in reserve until the person could be reconstructed by some kind of superintelligence, like the intelligence predicted in the theories about the singularity. Bostrom's thinking is adjacent to this kind of informatic view and has to do with the computational theory of mind, which has a symbiotic relationship with computer science and is very popular in cognitive scientific circles. According to this theory, the thing that creates conscious experience is some kind of structural feature of the computation being performed by the mind. If consciousness is achieved by some kind of computation, and computers perform computation, then in some significant way, brains and computers are incredibly alike. For Bostrom, it does not necessarily matter what material underpins the computation, which, in accordance with an informatic view, would be the processing of a unique pattern of information that makes up a singular mind. Therefore, a computer program that performed the correct kind of computation with the correct kind of information could be considered conscious. Of course, this is a very particular view of consciousness. Some thinkers, like the physicist Max Tegmark, agree and argue that substrate independence is a natural conclusion based on how other natural processes work. Tegmark says that it's not as though a substrate is totally unnecessary for consciousness, it is only that the details of what the substrate is made out of don't matter much. He turns to sound wave phenomena to illustrate. When someone hears something, it is because they are detecting waves of sound that are produced by molecules ricocheting around in a variety of gases that make up the air. Tegmark points out that there cannot be any sound waves in a gas if there is no gas present, but that it doesn't really matter what kind of gas or what combination of gases the sound waves form in. Others in the field of consciousness science disagree with the concept of substrate independence implied in this kind of computational model. The neuroscientist Giulio Tononi has a very different approach to information as it relates to consciousness. Although I won't go far into it, he essentially approaches information from an intrinsic, integrated perspective instead of something that is used to some end. Tononi, whose integrated information theory of consciousness is becoming more and more popular, essentially asserts that the brain is not a computer and does not function like one. 
He has many reasons for this argument, but a few are that the brain has special functions and organizations that do not appear to be consistent with performing computations or following a set of exact instructions, that the brain's billions of connections are not exact and therefore unlike a computer, and that the behavior of neurons in a given brain show incredible microscopic variability, even though its overall connective patterns may be describable in more general terms. For Bostrom, the computational model of mind must be correct in order for substrate independence to be applicable, and the possibility of a fine-grain, high-definition simulation with conscious simulated beings to exist. This, plus the enormous amounts of technological advancement and computing power that technologists and futurologists predict will be available in the future, make the simulation argument somewhat plausible. However, there are certainly many other highly plausible competing views of consciousness and reality, which, if true, would render this theory nothing more than a fable. Now that we have an overview of what the simulation argument is and what the necessary future real conditions are for its existence, our job becomes tracing its mythological reality. There is a distinct difference between the simulation theory and the other theories that have been mentioned in this essay so far, like the informatic view of reality or the computational theory of mind. The simulation theory has a component that the others do not, a narrative. It tells a story, and not just any story, an origin story of the entire cosmos. It is, in essence, a cosmology, and any cosmology is a literary enterprise. This is not incompatible with a scientific perspective. Seen from a certain viewpoint, the Big Bang is just a story about hot gas. In some ways, the simulation argument can be seen as the culmination of decades of philosophy, cognitive science, and computer science. However, a simultaneous evolution may also be inferred from a mythological perspective. As a creation mythology, the simulation hypothesis may be seen as the mythic result produced by the unconscious of consciousness's perpetual fusing with technology. However, in order for the theory to be scientifically plausible, we would have to have a clear understanding of not only what consciousness is, but also how to replicate it. Consciousness is considered the foremost property of embodied, living organisms that are embedded in environments. However, there is no authoritative definition for consciousness. Different scientists and researchers define consciousness differently according to varying purposes. We know that consciousness disappears when we fall asleep or go under anesthesia, and then reappears when we wake up or when the drug wears off. What we do not know is how consciousness arises from the activity of the brain. Scientifically, the human experience of consciousness is customarily considered to be a product of the causal relations between the brain, the body, 
and the subject's environment, although the exact role of the environment is up for debate. There are creation myths that, instead of having to do with the origins of the universe, have to do with the origin of human conscious awareness of reality. Von Franz suggests that these myths may indicate the presence of a precognitive, unconscious understanding that must be in place before we can cross the threshold into knowing. From here, she concludes that these myths present the perspective that, before we can understand the origin of the cosmos, we must first begin to know the origin of our knowing. In a creation myth found in the Brihad Aranyaka Upanishad from India around 700 or 600 BCE, there is a story about Prajapati, the lord of creation, or Brahma, the creator. In it, the beginning is described as absolute nothingness. Then, Prajapati, or Brahma, thinks to himself, let me have a self, and creates the mind before going on to create the world. In an Australian Aboriginal creation story, The beginning is described as a time when everything was still, and all the spirits of the earth were asleep, except the great father of all spirits. He awakens the sun mother and instructs her to go down to earth and wake all the sleeping spirits so that she may give them form. In these myths, the stories of the origin of the cosmos are dependent and intertwined with stories of consciousness. There must be some agent who is conscious enough to know something before there can be an act of knowing. Although it is certainly formulated differently, the simulation hypothesis also requires an awakening of consciousness. This time, however, the awakening is into a state of knowledge regarding what consciousness is and how it operates. We must come to understand consciousness as computational in order to live in the reality of the simulation. Whether or not that comes to be is, of course, yet to be seen, but here, too, there is a function that consciousness must serve. In order for the reality that the simulation hypothesis describes to come to pass, we must first also begin to know the origin of our knowing. Certainly, the philosophy of mind required for the plausibility of the simulation hypothesis is the product of years of academic discourse on consciousness and on computer science. The modern ubiquity of technology also undoubtedly plays a role in the growing acceptance of a computational model as well. All of this can be seen as a linear tide through time, arriving at a current perspective. However, time itself gets a little murky when it comes to myth, and as a myth, the simulation hypothesis has a very interesting relationship to time. There is a great difference between how time works in the history and operations of technoscience versus how time functions within mythology. In creation myths, time can sometimes be traced back to a different singularity— a vanishing point that separates nothingness from being. More generally, though, time in mythology is a formless, shifting entity. It often doubles back on itself so that it can raise its head from its arms anew. In the Greek mythological canon, for instance, different characters interact with each other in different stories on different timelines. In this way, mythology remains evergreen, a reflective pillar upon which we lean and in which we search for our own reflection. The progression of technoscience, on the other hand, may be viewed as a causal, linear evolution, each new advancement building on its predecessors. In terms of how generations of technology replace each other, there is a causal history that can be traced. However, although there is a causal succession of technological advancement, we are also finding that this advancement is continuously speeding up. We are trying to grapple with the way in which our world is changing, 
and the speed at which these changes occur, a speed that seems to vastly outpace the speed of natural processes, including psyches. Some of this can be understood if we examine how time works in a digital universe versus how time works for us in our world. For us in the natural world, time is a continuum. In the digital world, time is measured by sequence. The digital universes found in computers are bound by two separate singularities. At the beginning, there is t, time, which equals zero, and at the hypothetical end, there is t, time, that equals infinity. Along this spectrum, time acts as a measurable set of individual sequential steps. According to our perception of time in the natural world, this digital sequence is speeding up as technology advances, making it appear as if time is moving faster. Some argue that there is actually no time at all in a digital universe, because sequence and time are fundamentally different. As we become more embedded with our technologies, and this disjunction of time becomes more potent, our collective psychological processes may be facing an unprecedented dilemma of understanding. So, a hybrid creation myth appears, in the form of the simulation hypothesis, still dependent on future real scenarios and therefore not yet fully formed, but formed enough to rest our feet on. And it is in this juncture that we actually find ourselves as a species. We are caught between two versions of the world, digital and natural, with two distinct versions of time. Within the simulation argument itself, time is a protean concept. The hypothesis has to do with the creation of the world as we know it, and in this way it has to do with the past, but it is a narrative of the past that relies on events of the future. Accordingly, we will only come to know the past by how we come to know the future. Although there are a few variations that are commonly explored, one theory about the civilization that may be running our simulation is that they are our own descendants from millions of years in the future observing our history. If this were the case, although we would experience time as linear, time as a larger construct would actually be cyclical. There is a long mythological precedent for the concept of cyclical time, as well as precedents for two kinds of time coexisting at once, like a linear variant that sits atop an infinite or cyclical one. In some ways, it recalls the image of the Ouroboros that was projected onto uncharted geographies and inscribed on ancient maps to represent the unknown. Perhaps our intuition about the cyclical nature of our reality has been with us for a long, long time. We must go forward to go back, and our existence, in some way, may be both the snake's head and tail at the same time. Another way the notion of cyclical realities comes into the picture is through the concept of nested, simulated universes. Bostrom argues that there is a good chance that our creators were in fact simulated beings themselves, and their creators, and their creators, which would make reality in some ways a recursive loop. Bostrom points out that it may be possible for simulated civilizations to become posthuman, although the computers they build in their realities to run their simulations would be virtual machines. This concept is supported by practices in computer science, like JavaScript. If we in this universe ever get to the point where we are running our own ancestor simulations, then there will be convincing evidence that the first two propositions of Bostrom's theory are false and that our reality is in fact simulated. Furthermore, Bostrom argues that this may lead us to reasonably suspect that our creators are themselves living within a simulation, and their creators as well. However, as simulated realities create simulations themselves, 
It is also logical to imagine that the computing power available to each successive simulation would be less than that which was available to its predecessor. This would perhaps result in a majority of simulated realities that do not have the power to create further simulations capable of accommodating conscious beings. In this descending series of universes, which may result in successively weaker realities, philosopher Eric Steinhardt sees a sort of digital infinite great chain of being. The concept of a hierarchical chain of all matter and life can be traced back to Plato and Aristotle. There are also plenty of creation mythologies that show long chains of ancestors and gods that exist and multiply before any creation of our physical reality ever takes place. These chains of archetypes generate each other until finally creating the world as we know it. In a version of the Japanese creation mythology from the Shinto tradition, there are innumerable gods or divine spirits called kamis. The first three kamis are born from the primordial formlessness as it begins to separate itself into sky and earth. They are genderless and shapeless. Then, as the elements begin separating further, more and more generations of kamis are born until two are born that become the creators of the world, Izanagi and Izanami. Izanagi eventually creates the islands of Japan by plunging his staff into the ocean and pulling out island-sized clumps of mud. Izanami and Izanagi in turn create many more kamis in the form of elemental deities and geographical deities. Eventually, they have a daughter who was so beautiful that the gods declared her too precious for this earth and put her up in the sky to be the sun. Later, she would bear a son who became the emperor of Japan, from whom all subsequent emperors have claimed lineage. There is a similar chain of genealogy, or birth of the Greek gods, described by Hesiod in the Theogony. The Theogony tells of how reality began with the spontaneous generation of four powerful primordial deities, Chaos, Gaia, Tartarus, and Eros, from Gaia the earth came Uranus the sky. Then from the coupling of Gaia and Uranus was born the titan Kronos. The Theogony goes on to describe how Kronos castrated and overthrew Uranus, and then how Kronos's son, Zeus, overthrew him. From there, it details Zeus's offspring and their offspring, and how this pantheon of gods established control over the cosmos. In some Gnostic and Neoplatonic cosmogenies, these chains of archetypal entities are sort of replaced by numbers and numerical concepts. First, there is the one, and then the creation of reality happens when the two develops out of the one, followed by the three developing out of the two, and the four from the three, and so on. In the creation mythology described by the Gnostic theologian Valentinus, there is a genealogy of personified divine powers, beginning with the autopater, the self-generated father. Then, from an intrapsychic union of the autopater with anoia, which means thought, comes aletheia, which means truth, and anthropos, which means man. These four recombine in a spiritual quartet that produces another quartet, this time consisting of anthropos, ecclesia, which means the church, logos, which means thought again, and zoe, which means life. Then, the autopater, Anthropos and Ecclesia join in a triad to produce 12 gods, six male and six female, who then go on to generate eight more gods, who go on to generate even more. Later Gnostic systems influenced by Valentinus conceive of these powers not as personified beings, but as numbers and letters which generate each other. 
The idea of numbers and letters being the basis of the universe is not unique to the Christian tradition. Kabbalists believe that the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet are the body of God and will reveal to their worshiper the way of the Lord. They believe this in part because one can rearrange the 22 symbols infinitely, in any combination, to make anything. When considered in light of the simulation hypothesis, the idea of numbers and letters being the foundation of reality translates almost literally into the concept of computer code. Code is the set of instructions given to a computer about what it should do next. Computer code is made up of a combination of numbers and letters or words, which, when arranged in the correct order, will tell a computer how to behave. Interestingly enough, computer code itself has mythological roots. Binary code, from which all modern computer code evolved, was first described by a mathematician named Gottfried Leibniz in 1689. Leibniz was inspired by the hexagrams of the I Ching. The I Ching, which translates to the Book of Changes, is one of the oldest classic Chinese texts and divinatory systems. It is considered to predate recorded history, although some traditional Chinese accounts say that it was created around the 3rd millennium BCE and then passed down as an oral tradition. The I Ching regards reality as describable through a binary system of yin and yang. Yin, the receptive, which is also referred to as the feminine, is represented by a broken line. Yang, the creative, which is also referred to as the masculine, is represented by an unbroken line. These lines combine in sets of three to make eight trigrams, which are then combined to make 64 hexagrams, each describing an archetypal situation of human life. In the I Ching, Leibniz recognized an incredibly sophisticated binary system, which produces a representation of reality. By assigning a zero to the yin line and a one to the yang line, he translated what he saw into a system of arithmetic more refined than our decimal system. Through his encounter with the material, he came to believe that reality was not to be found in a single source, but rather in the interconnectedness of all things. The creator of the I Ching is traditionally considered to be the mythological figure Fu Si, who, in some versions of a Chinese creation myth, is credited with creating humanity alongside his sister Nu Hua. It is perhaps striking to recognize how the building blocks of the digital universe trace their history back to a mythological origin. From the developments built on the system Leibniz described, we eventually arrived at the concept of numbers that do something— as opposed to numbers that just mean something. It is also of note that the 64 hexagrams in the I Ching have been compared to the 64 codons of human DNA with a nearly identical correlation. If we are living in a simulation, then it seems reasonable to imagine that there would be a similar code animating our world, ourselves, and the changes that occur within reality.
The concept that there is a base level of reality, truer than our own, from which our substantive reality emanates, is nothing new. The idea that our reality is in fact some kind of simulation has been a fixture of philosophical and religious thought throughout time. Platonic idealism regards individuals as simulacra for pure being, and our world as a reflection of a higher truth. In the simulation theory, there is also a concept that the reality we live in is generated from a deeper level of reality, one from which the simulation is run. Although the discourse around different levels of reality has been around for a long time and has transformed along the lines of human intellectual development, speculation about whether or not our world is a computer-programmed simulation has increased alongside the growing prevalence of artificial intelligence and the advancement of computer technology. The conversation has been particularly present in the Western zeitgeist since the 1990s, when social scientists and natural scientists began using computer simulations and models in their research. In his book, The Simulation Hypothesis, the computer scientist and video game designer Rizwan Verk presents a thorough unpacking of various avenues of scholarship that support the belief that our world is a virtual one. He acknowledges that new speculation in physics supports the hypothesis that reality, as we perceive it, emerges from an underlying pattern that we cannot access. Verk builds on Bostrom's theory, but develops it in a slightly different direction. Bostrom admits that if our reality is simulated, and therefore the universe we observe is only a small portion of the totality of physical existence, then it is possible that the physics in the universe from which the simulation is run may not be the same as the physics of our world. It's possible that scientists like Copernicus actually discovered the laws of our simulated reality, but that these laws may not be the same as those that operate at the more fundamental level of reality. Verk expands this idea based on the proposition that instead of Bostrom's ancestor simulator, which might be programmed to run without much interference, we may instead be living inside a video game. In order to support his theory, Verk turns not only to science, but also to archetypal patterns in religious mythology. Verk is not the first person to highlight the correlation between the idea of a simulated reality and the Hindu concept of Maya, which says that the reality we live in is an illusion. However, Verk's rendition of the simulation hypothesis as a video game adds an interesting dimension to this comparison. Eastern religious traditions involve concepts of karma and reincarnation. Verk highlights that the terminology that video games use, such as avatars, multiple lives, and quests, intersects quite well with these concepts. In Eastern religious traditions, humans live their lives out in the illusory world of Maya in order to work through their individual karma. Where a person leaves off in one life, they will pick up in the next. This concept, that there is a person or an entity who exists outside of the universe in which they participate, but incarnates in it as a character in order to fulfill a set of tasks, fits very well into the model of both reincarnation, as it is seen in many Eastern religions, as well as video game playing. Although the formulation of reincarnation differs between various Eastern religions, the mechanism of lessons learned leading to a rebirth is somewhat constant. The concept of karma, Verk points out, can be seen as the information you acquire throughout a lifetime. In a video game, when one lifetime ends, you begin a new one and go back into the reality of the video game once more. 
in an Eastern religious model, you re-enter the reality from which you left, but this time as a different person, although you carry information with you from your previous lives. In some Buddhist doctrines, that which reincarnates is not some indestructible soul, as some Hindu traditions state, but is instead some kind of bundle of karma. According to Buddhist philosophy, this bundle is the accumulated cluster of cause and effect that dictates the next rebirth. Verk explains that this would be analogous to a unique set of information belonging to a specific consciousness, like those explored earlier in the informatic view of reality and mind. Where might this information be tallied and stored? Verk invokes the concept of the Akashic Records, which is a spiritual repository of karma that exists outside of the substantive universe. Although it has roots in Eastern religious thought, the concept Verk refers to is the Western incarnation of the term, introduced by the Theosophists. The Sanskrit word at the root of Akashic is Akasa, which, at its core, can be roughly translated into space, atmosphere, or sky. The Western equivalent may be closer to ether, which was the hypothetical fifth element of the world proposed by Aristotle. In a computer-based metaphor, one can see this concept as some kind of infinite server or cloud from which an individual downloads the information that would constitute their consciousness. Verk also points out that the concept of reality being a great video game also aligns with Western religious traditions. In various Western religions, angels or messengers of God keep track of your behavior, and this information determines what happens in the afterlife. Verk refers to the Islamic concept of the hereafter, which in Arabic is al-Akira, which is compared to the here and now, or al-Dunya. On the Day of Judgment, which is called the Day of Qiyamah, a person's soul is judged based on their behavior throughout their lifetime. This judgment is based on a scroll of deeds, which is the record of all things ever done by a specific person. The judgment process involves showing an individual, through some visual mechanism, a life review of the effect that their actions had on other people and on the world around them. Verk compares the recording of an individual's behavior in the scroll of deeds to a video game character's scorecard, which is stored on a cloud, outside the rendered world of the game. He then compares the process of reviewing one's actions on the Day of Judgment to the replay of recorded gameplay sessions in many massive multiplayer online role-playing games, which allow a player to review what went well and what didn't in a given session. Verk also references Jewish and Christian faiths. He cites Genesis 1-3, which describes the beginning of reality as, God said, let there be light, and there was light. From there, Genesis says that God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. Verk points out that if our reality was a simulation, that this light could literally be the electromagnetic signals used to spin up a computer program. Spinning up is when a disk in a drive speeds up to the proper revolutions per minute for encoding onto or reading from the disk. Verk's associative work on the connection between the simulation hypothesis and mythological structures in religion is vast and worth reading. Bostrom also admits, as an aside, that there are parallels to be drawn between the simulation argument and the views of various schools of religious thought. 
Although he considers the simulation argument to be naturalistic, Bostrom concedes that it's possible to relate the posthumans who are running a simulation as godlike to those who inhabit the simulation. These posthumans would have superior intelligence, the ability to record any event that happens, and be able to interfere in the workings of our world, which are all attributions one might assign to a deity. However, some have pointed out that there is no inherent holiness or sanctity in the simulation model. In the version where our descendants are the ones running ancestor simulations, the beings outside who are running the simulation are not gods, but people like us. Some proponents of the simulation argument insist that the theory not only answers some of the mysteries of religious thought, but also resolves age-old scientific questions, including those about the perplexing nature of reality at the quantum level. Virk highlights the relationship between the way games store and render information and the concept of quantum indeterminacy. Quantum indeterminacy is the idea that a particle can exist in one of multiple states, and that you can't know what state it is in until it is observed because the act of observation participates in deciding what state the particle is in. This process is most often illustrated by the thought experiment Schrodinger's cat. Schrodinger's cat tells us that if a cat were to be sealed in a steel chamber with some radioactive material that could potentially kill it, you would not know if the cat was dead or alive until you opened the box and looked at it. So the cat in the box has a 50% chance of being alive and a 50% chance of being dead. Of course, there's the argument that the cat is either alive or dead to begin with, and we simply do not know because we haven't opened the box yet. However, quantum physics actually says that this is not so. A quantum system may exist in a superposition state, which is when a system has two or more different states that could possibly define it with the potential that it may exist in both or any of those states. Quantum indeterminacy tells us that it is actually the act of observation that decides what state the system will be in. A superposition is described by a mathematical wave function, and the act of observation somehow causes the wave to collapse into one of however many possible states. So the cat in the box is both alive and dead until someone observes it, and the probability inherent in the wave breaks down into a state in which the cat is either dead or alive. If our world is a simulation, then this collapse does not really happen. Instead, the video game might only render the reality that was being observed by a given player. 
Virk describes an important tenet of video game development as being the optimization of limited resources. A three-dimensional virtual reality game would require enormous computing power if it was run full-scale all the time. So an optimization technique used is to only render that which is being observed. So even though massively multiplayer online role-playing games have their reality stored in some kind of master state on a server, the rendering of what is actually seen by people playing the game is done on each individual computer. This aligns with the principle of quantum indeterminacy, which says that the act of observation in part determines reality. Wherever we look, we find reality. But who is to say reality is rendered where no one is looking at it? Furthermore, in this analogy of how video games store data, we see another example of how information about a world may be stored in a system that exists outside of its substantive reality. Considering how information may be stored and organized in our universe, there is a line of thought that circles back to the issue of time. The astronomer, computer scientist, and technologist Jacques Vallée has done extensive work into what he calls the physics of information. Vallée approaches the concept of information from the perspective of both a physicist and a computer scientist. He explains that the way we think the universe is organized in terms of the theory of space-time, is in fact a cultural artifact made possible by the invention of graph paper. Space-time is a mathematical continuum model in which there are three dimensions for space and one for time, which together form a single four-dimensional manifold. Vallée admits that he's always been uncomfortable with the theory because, Although you can move in multiple directions within any of the three dimensions that make up the space portion of the theory, we of course cannot move backwards or forwards in time. In fact, we have no real idea why time passes at all. If dimension X is considered to be up and down, and dimension Y is considered to be frontwards and backwards, and dimension Z is considered to be side to side, all of which you can move in multiple directions within, one can easily visualize why it is so strange that time, T, a dimension that we cannot move at all within, should be treated the same way as the others. Vallée regards the theory of space-time as a cultural artifact that served the purpose of organizing the amount of information we had access to around the time of its invention. If you have a library with 10,000 volumes, it's very easy to organize it based on a series of coordinates vertically, horizontally, etc. You could map it out on graph paper. However, modern libraries are housed on servers, 
where the concept of these kinds of dimensions as we know them do not apply. There is no dimension of time in these libraries. Instead, the information is distributed statistically throughout virtual memory, and then that information is retrieved associatively. Valet explains that computer scientists know that organizing information by space and time is an incredibly inefficient way to store data. He concludes that if we had perhaps invented the digital computer before graph paper, we might have a very different theory of information today. If our universe is organized associatively like a modern computer, and not sequentially like in the space-time theory, then events like synchronicities would not be supernatural. They would be a byproduct of how reality is organized. If this were the case, and there is no time dimension, consciousness could be seen as the process by which informational associations are retrieved and traversed. Consciousness would then be the thing that generates the illusion of space-time during the act of traversing associations. Another way of saying this might be that space-time is, in fact, a pan-mathematical mythology. This kind of thinking implies that the universe is an organizational system much more complex than any simulation or video game. It would have to be something much bigger, more advanced and sophisticated than anything our current or hypothesized future real technologies could analogize. However, the conclusions presented here still use the computer and the internet and how they are organized as analogies for the universe. These conclusions are still dependent on an evolving relationship between human consciousness and information technology, and they still rely on a model that treats our perception of reality as emerging from an informational matrix. previous worldviews, the universe was seen in more interconnected and ecological ways, and mythic structures arose from mankind being immersed in the natural world. Animism is a lens of viewing the world as interdependent and alive. The word animism comes from the Latin anima, which means breath, spirit, or life. In animistic philosophy, all objects, places, and creatures have an element of spirit or consciousness to them. Animistic thought reads a certain kind of enchantment into the world, one by which the spirit that animates human consciousness also animates the entire world. With the simulation hypothesis, we once again arrive at some kind of enchantment of the world, only this time it is a digital enchantment. This time, the fire that burns and animates the world is a computer code, and this code also has something to do with human consciousness. The historian Francis Yates once said, the basic difference between the attitude of the magician to the world and the attitude of the scientist towards the world 
is that the former wants to draw the world into himself, whilst the scientist does just the opposite. He externalizes and impersonalizes the world by a movement of will in an entirely opposite direction. The simulation theory seems to paradoxically be performing both attitudes. We have externalized reality through a technoscientific worldview that is both computational and informational. At the same time, we have drawn it into ourselves with the belief that the product of this technoscientific externalization is actually what we are comprised of. We have objectified consciousness and then concluded that the informational materiality of this objective reality makes up our subjective reality. As we move into a hybrid existence, one that finds us increasingly separated from the natural world, the mythic structures that used to arise from our relationship with nature must now find a way to navigate the technological transformation of our time. We are not entirely divorced from the environment, and yet we are actively losing our connection with the earth. Global warming and the philosophical relocation of spirit from nature to machine, amongst other shifts, illustrate the magnitude of the transition in which humanity finds itself. In many ways, our technologies have uprooted traditional spiritualities, and the structures that used to provide spiritual orientation are breaking down. Organized religion is collapsing in a rapidly secularizing and globalized world, but people still yearn for deeper meaning. And so there may be new mythologies, ones that are not based on cultural factions or religions and instead reflect back to us our global reality. The simulation hypothesis does this, and even though it is far from an ideal form, it is a start, a fledgling myth. The concept of the future real that which must come to pass in order for the reality that the simulation model proposes to exist, places our current society in a very unique position in time. Mircha Eliade describes myth as narrating a sacred history. It relates an event that took place in the primordial time, the fabled time of the beginnings. If we place ourselves in the worldview described by the simulation argument, then we are now in that sacred time of the primordial beginnings. In a way, anything up until the simulation is created could be argued to be a prehistory. It is our technological reality now and how it advances which will determine how we understand our past. Where we are now, with changing models of time and information, with open concepts of the human and the machine, with cosmologies that may possess many mythic structural elements as well as scientific plausibility, would all be part of a swirling pre-understanding of our reality. This understanding would only crystallize after the technological singularity had been reached. In a way, as seen through the lens of the simulation hypothesis, the events taking place in our current time are the very ones that will establish the world and make it real. Jung wrote of how knowledge of the universal origins builds the bridge between the lost and abandoned world of the past and the still largely inconceivable world of the future. He stressed the importance of this understanding and the assimilation of this understanding in navigating the human experience that we inherit. Without some knowledge of our universal origins, our rootlessness will only grow and our sense of meaning diminish. 
A purely technological outlook cannot solve the problems that arise from this unknowing. Jung describes a technological or entirely rational viewpoint of history as one-sided and remarks that one-sidedness never doubts itself. However, he emphasizes that neither technology nor the dominance of reason can stem the tide of the unconscious, irrational counterforces which reduce the certitudes of the rational mind to absurdity. He concludes that as rationality lays an increasingly absolute claim to the direction of life, the more intensely the irrational, or the longing for the irrational, makes itself felt as an unconscious compensation. In consideration of Jung's conclusion, perhaps there is some deep insight to be seen in the current popularity of the simulation hypothesis. In some ways, it may be seen as a kind of attempt to bridge the divide between the human and the technological. It may be regarded as an effort to locate within the technological all that we consider beautiful and sacred. If we are living in a simulation, then love, family, ritual, and meaning are all products of the technology that produces the simulation. Therefore, to claim the technological as human and capable of producing human salvation and human love and human justice, we perform a digital enchantment of the world. As society marches towards an intensifying technological totality, something like the simulation hypothesis may be an attempt to read ourselves back into the fabric of reality. If the universe is information and matter is an illusion, then locating some agentive nature in our having gotten to this point may be part of healing that divide. Maybe there is a wisdom within the collective unconscious that understands that we cannot lose our mythological knowledge and remain healthy as a species. So a new myth emerges, told in technological language, that keeps a certain kind of continuity intact. Like many myths before it, the simulation hypothesis places us in a reality in which time is a circle. The future is our past. As a side note, it may be worth mentioning that the simulation hypothesis became popular in the first few years of the millennium. Right before the year 2000, there was another archetypal structure that exploded in the technological imagination, Y2K. In this instance, the archetypal formation was an apocalyptic one, the direct counterpoint to a creation mythology. The word apocalypse comes from the Greek apokalypsis and refers to the revelation of that which has been hidden. The verb calypto means to cover or hide, and the preposition apo means away. So together it means the lifting of the veil that exposes that which has been covered. Although there is certainly much more to say about the nature of the hysteria behind Y2K, it is of note that apocalyptic archetypes indicate the end of an age. Much like how creation myths constellate as a new worldview emerges, apocalyptic myths may appear as a worldview declines. It is interesting to consider why the Y2K phenomenon may have preceded the simulation argument. It is as though we had to imagine a way that technology might cause the end of the world before we were able to see it as something that could generate the world's beginning.
It has been argued that the rational scientific mindset has robbed us of our connection to soul and to the act of soul making. But what if technology itself was a living myth? When Hermes, the mercurial trickster, discovers fire, it is not just a discovery. He invents a process that makes fire, and this method is called a techni. The hacker of the 1990s is undoubtedly a mercurial archetype, and the dreamscape of cyberspace takes its forms from the repositories of the collective unconscious. Since the 1970s, some thinkers have regarded the internet as an emerging consciousness itself, as an emerging consciousness that lends itself to us, do we lend ourselves to it? There may be some kind of anthropomorphic egotism in the idea that civilizations much more advanced than us are spending their time and energy simulating humans and the world we live in. However, as we begin to feel less and less connected to the natural world we were born into, something like the simulation hypothesis may actually serve, perhaps misguidedly, as an attempt to feel more a part of the world around us. If reality is a computer program, and we are a part of that reality, then we as humans are connected to each other and to the world around us in some meaningful, tangible way. There is something beautiful in the proposition that, even as we progress towards a more technologically dominated reality, we are still weaving myths although mythologies and the realms in which they appear are transforming in the same progress. A creation myth is a description of the process by which nothingness becomes something. It tells of the transition from chaos to cosmos. Because it is unknowable, the event of the creation of the universe remains both scientifically and mythically under the influence of archetypal structures. We cannot know the multitude of states or operations belonging to the unconscious, just as the physicist cannot know of the processes that underlie the emergence of physical phenomena. We cannot know that which exists beyond our phenomenal reality, and the only thing of which we do have immediate knowledge is the content of the psychic image reflected in consciousness. As we become more embedded in our technologies, our psychic images of the human, the mind, and the world transform. They may even change many more times as we become more deeply interconnected. However, at this point now, where we find ourselves in a hybrid state of existence, on a bridge between the future and the past, we encounter the simulation hypothesis. The hypothesis itself may not be considered fully implementable, because of its own reliance on the future real, but certainly in its openness and form, we find a corresponding psychic reflection to our current human condition. The philosopher David Chalmers has said that we will never have any conclusive proof that we are not living in a computer simulation because any proof we might come to discover could itself be simulated. As it stands, the inquiry around whether or not our world is a computer simulation falls in a long line of questions that remain without answers. In this very way, instead of telling us where we are going or where we came from, 
It orients us to where we are right now, caught somewhere between knowing and unknowing, matter and spirit, atoms and pixels. Technomythology was written and narrated by L.D. Deutsch. This audio essay was produced and edited by Grace Scott. The music you heard is from the 2019 album Anthology Resource Volume 2, Philosophy of Beyond by Dean Hurley, copyright Sacred Bones Records. A printed edition of Technomythology and other essays by L.D. Deutsch can be purchased from Sacred Bones at sacredbonesrecords.com.